Our cyber workforce is defining possible every day in an environment that fosters talent and rewards excellence. Northrop Grumman needs cyber professionals like you to join our team to help defend our nation and its allies. We have openings in Maryland, Northern Virginia, Cincinnati, Ohio, and Tampa, Florida. To begin your journey with us, visit our careers webpage, northropgrumman.com forward slash careers. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report's weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Joining us today is Chris Painter, a man who has been a pioneer cyber crimes prosecutor, America's chief cyber diplomat during the Obama administration, who is now with the Global Commission on the Stability of Cyberspace. He is also the co-host of the Inside Cyber Diplomacy podcast, along with another friend of our program, Dr. Jim Lewis of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Chris, it's always a pleasure having you back on the program. Thanks for joining us. Happy to be with you. Uh, And before we get started, a word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage. And L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all domain command and control. Chris, uh, nation state cyber operations were aimed at either espionage or at strategic targets. For example, Iran's nuclear uh, centrifuges to delay the nation's uh, atomic weapons program. But increasingly, we're seeing that nation state cyber operations are impacting average folks. And uh, the New York Times over the weekend did um, what was a great story that talked about the how regular folks, whether in Israel or Iran, are getting caught uh, in the cyber um, the war between these these two uh, powers. Right. There was a, a suspected Israeli attack on Iran that caused nationwide gasoline shortages that spanned nearly two weeks. Uh, and then a suspected attack by Tehran on Israeli LGBTQ uh, sites that compromised uh, pr- very private information uh, by folks who uh, may not be out, uh, creating uh, all sorts of challenges. We've seen in the United States personal and medical data that's being targeted, uh, either for intelligence purposes, but also the colonial pipeline and food and, and other hacks. Um, where, where, where are we heading? Uh, given that these campaigns are becoming ever more public, people are more and more being caught up in them. Uh, and this kind of stuff is really escalating, even though I think the administration has taken ac- actions to sort of tamp things down a bit. So first I'd say this is this is not really new, but, but it, it reflects a couple of things. One, cyber weapons, if you will, and I don't know exactly what a cyber weapon is, but cyber capabilities are not a monopoly of states. And even in the, the Israeli-Iran case, it's not clear entirely if these were state actors, if they were criminal actors acting on behalf of the state or activists or, or who the actors were. It's interesting that neither Israel nor Iran formally blamed the other for, for these activities, which is interesting because normally I think they would, uh, and neither took credit for them either. Uh, but it does, it does certainly, I think, show that these capabilities are not a monopoly of states, they, they proliferate, uh, they're in the, the, the wheelhouse of criminal actors as well. Uh, usually states uh, will do this in normal times for espionage, uh, like it's happened to the US many times. Uh, disruptive activities are rarer, but if you have a tension between two countries, that certainly has happened. We saw that with Estonia and, and Russia back in 2007. So again, not new. Um, But I do think it reflects increasingly that this is not just something where the impacts are ethereal, as often has been the case in the past. I think Colonial Pipelines was 
in many ways uh, changed the game because colonial pipelines coupled with the JB meat processor and the uh, Irish healthcare system sort of changed the game because it brought home to people this actually impacts their everyday lives. And it's not just you know, theft of people's information or theft of trade secrets or theft of government secrets. Uh, this could have a real bad impact on everyday lives. And that's one of the reasons we've seen the issue of ransomware really climb the charts in terms of national priority in a substantial way just over the past you know, six months. Um, so it's not surprising we're seeing this. Uh, it is concerning, certainly, because uh, civilian populations are being impacted. Uh, again, not surprising because civilian populations depend on technologies like the internet to do banking, to do personal activities, to, to you know, control systems like gas. Um, but it, what it shows us is, is a, a, you know, we need to do much better in the things that we've tried to do, but I'd say not done as well, which is harden our targets, harden our systems. Um, uh, you know, the, the basic kind of cybersecurity and, and uh, hygiene that can prevent a lot of these things from happening, not all of them, dedicated state actors will still probably get in. Uh, but also that we have some resilience, so we have backup systems, uh, and that we have consequences for bad actors. And it also shows the importance of this long-term work we've been doing in the UN, which is talking about what, what things are on and off limits for, for nation states. So, you know, uh, you talk about gas systems and shutting down gas systems. Well, you know, I think that's clearly a critical infrastructure, and all states, including every state in the world now has agreed that that should be off limits in peacetime. Wartime, different rules, but still right. you can go after primarily civilian targets. But in peacetime, you shouldn't be going after those things. Um, so it's not surprising, it's concerning, and we have a lot of work to do. And the story, uh, no disrespect to the authors, right? It was it was good, it had nuance, uh, it focused uh, the, the minds of folks who don't think about it as often and mm -hmm. as much as you or I do, as folks who are regularly uh, covering it in my case and living it in your case, or, or have been living it uh, for, for decades in your case. Uh, and yet, I think it highlights a, a whole series of important questions, right? I mean, as, as you as you framed, the this administration is taking very, very seriously uh, how to take an integrated sort of national approach uh, to this, right? We have a national cyber director, uh, the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, and uh, Mark Montgomery, uh, the executive director, joins us regularly for updates or legislatively, where are we going uh, to, to try to sort this stuff out? At, at the end of the day, Chris, do... The United States still maintains that should any cyber operation result in fatalities, that that becomes kind of causus belli. Well, yeah, uh, I mean, look, is, is anybody taking that threat seriously or because there's this tendency of looking at this as kind of a gray area where folks can actually have a lot more running room than maybe people think. We ourselves have a tendency of sometimes tamping down uh, whether uh, there is a fatality or or not, right? Because we basically don't want to go to war over something like that. Like how how seriously do, is where does this line lie from here? Well, I, I think it's a very real line. And look, you know, I think if you look back in the history of all the various you know, very high profile cyber events we've seen, very serious cyber events, and I'm not trying in any way uh, to diminish them. Uh, you know, to the extent there may have been a death or one or two that were kind of incidental, that's still debatable, I think. But I think it's also clear that if you had the same effect as you would with kinetic weapons or, you know, uh, use of force that killed people or damaged property in a significant way, uh, we would react the same way if it was done physically, if it's done in the physical world. So 
you know, I think that's been clear. It's been, it's been clear for a while. And the interesting thing about that is, although a lot of doomsday sayers have been saying for years that we're going to have a cyber 9-11, a cyber Pearl Harbor, we haven't had that. And so you have to ask yourself why. Uh, because the capabilities are certainly out there, and we're certainly very dependent on these technologies. And I think the reason is, you know, nation states, even adversarial nation states, don't want to go there because they recognize that if they actually triggered that, if they got to the point where all options were on the table, the U.S. would use those options, but hit back very hard. And so what you've seen is kind of creeping up to that line, very serious activity in terms of theft of information, disruption, other things that we've seen. You know, the Colonial Pipelines uh, attack, which was disruptive, was by a criminal group, not by a nation state in this case. Right. So, so, you know, I think it has acted interestingly at that very, very high level as a deterrent because uh, people do take us and we take other countries seriously and that, look, if you get to that line, all bets are off. So, so I, you know, I don't want, to, <laughs> I certainly don't want a cyber right. pearl harbor. I don't want death and destruction to happen. I hope it never does. If it does, I think you're going to see a much swifter and stronger response by the U.S. or, frankly, any country that has the capabilities that's attacked in that way. Uh, and I don't expect we'll see that, uh, except if it's in connection with an already existing kind of shooting war or uh, a major conflict like something happens in the South China Sea, for instance, or with Taiwan, uh, where it's part of that. I don't think we'll see that. You know, the only time people have, have posited, well, maybe we'll see that is from terrorists, but terrorists just aren't interested in using cyber to cause death and destruction. They're interested in causing death and destruction using cyber to plan and to proselytize and to raise money, but, but not use cyber tools to go after infrastructure, at least not yet. Um, when it comes to how to combat this, right? I mean, there's a, a UN framework and then there's uh, an operational allies and, and, and partners framework, right? Some of which uh, intersect. Uh, the interesting thing about uh, cyber is uh, even small countries can really punch well above their weight. And then big countries can really, really punch hard, right? I mean, Israel is a military uh, superpower, uh, but, it's, but it's also a, a cyber superpower. But France, the United Kingdom, and a lot of our allies, even very small allies, tend to be pretty potent in, in the cyber game. What do alliances and partnerships in this space look like? And over the course of your career, how have they adapted and changed? Because once upon a time, this was sort of a really, uh, this, this was an intelligence, an extension of intelligence services uh, more than anything else. And indeed, it still has vestiges of it, right? I mean, U.S. Cyber Command and the National Security Agency uh, are conjoined, uh, right, for, for a reason, just like it is for our allies and partners, uh, whether it's GCHQ in the UK or elsewhere. But how, how is the nature of the cyber cooperation among allies and partners changing, given that everybody now recognizes that this is a common, very, very common threat? So that's where I really see the future going. So you mentioned the UN activity. I mean, I think that's really important, uh, defining what the rules of the road are, uh, what the levels of accountability are, things like don't attack critical infrastructure in peacetime, don't go after the certs or C certs, they're like ambulances or hospitals. Those set of rules and international law are a great guideline for the long-term stability of cyberspace. But you know, obviously we see people violating that. And if there's no accountability for the, the bad actors and including nation states who violate that, then they end up just being words on paper. So that accountability piece is critically important. And that accountability piece, in my view, is best done through collective action of like-minded partners. So 
you know, it's, you know, the U.S. can do it alone, but it's not nearly as strength, strong or have the legitimacy it does if it's doing it with allies and partners and not just our traditional five I allies. I mean, you know, building a, a larger tent uh, to work together. And we've seen good activity on a number of fronts. You know, obviously the five eyes are joined up on this, but we saw NATO recently condemn China's half meme attack. We've seen uh, you know, the EU imposed sanctions, uh, unanimously imposed sanctions on a number of different cyber actors using their diplomatic toolkit. And I think that's significant. Uh, so, you know, countries are stepping up to this understanding that we have to act together. We have to do this to police cyberspace or else it's going to deteriorate and detract from all the good things we're trying to do. I mean, the, the security is not an end in itself. We're trying to build stronger systems to, for economic growth and social growth. And so, you know, those, that, that alliance structure, that way of going forward and building like-minded alliances that can be flexible to, it can work, you know, different countries can work together in different situations to try to make sure there's accountability for these norms and understandings, I, I think is, is definitely the way to go. I, you know, there's some tensions in that. Uh, we have to balance unilateral action, which sometimes we like to do with collective action and working with allies and partners and building that trust. Uh, I think we're on the way there and we've made progress over the last few years, but there's, you know, we're still in the infancy. There's still a lot of misunderstanding. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of people are, you know, a lot of countries are just working through their own bureaucratic hurdles and understanding of this. You know, you talk about everything from attribution to joint action. It's not an easy thing to do, especially when until recently cyber was kind of more of a back burner issue. And now largely due to ransomware, interestingly, it's become a front burner issue. Uh, uh, it, it's it's true, right? I mean, when your citizens' gas supplies, uh, food, hospital systems uh, are are under assault, it tends to focus uh, the mind, right? I mean, the Washingtonians yeah. were driving around looking for gas uh, in in a way that uh, that we hadn't done for uh, a very long wow. period of of, of yeah. time, right? It, it, um, you know, it makes it a political. It's interesting because you know, for us, have labored in the vineyards for many many years on this. <laughs> I've been arguing that you know, cyber had to be treated seriously as a real, no kidding, national security issue and economic security issue. Yes, I mean, we made progress in the Obama administration, other administrations where it was taken more seriously, but never really got integrated that level uh, here or really anywhere else. It was still sort of, you know, still seen as kind of a technical issue. It wasn't integrated at that, that high level. And what ransomware did is for precisely the reason you say, when ordinary people can see it, it translates it to a political imperative for, for governments as well. And they have to react and they do react. And so, you know, I've been, you know, optimistic and heartened to see the level, because uh, it's not just ransomware. Ransomware is the priority right now, but it raises all boats in terms of cybersecurity and the kinds of attacks we might see. And even ransomware sometimes is, is criminal groups, sometimes it's proxies acting on behalf of the state uh, or states. So it, I think it really makes us uh, focus on this. My biggest worry, though, is that we can't afford this to be a flash in the pan. This has to be a sustained effort. Uh, and not something where this is the flavor of the day and like next year we're talking about something else. And that's that's what's happened in the past and I hope it doesn't happen this time. Um, I mean, one of the things uh, that everybody is very cautious about is what is a legitimate intelligence target uh, and and what is, um, you know, something that's not legitimate. Uh, yeah, wanted... yeah, go ahead. Right, well, I, I was, uh, is there something you wanted to add? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, that's, as you said, this kind of grew up, a lot of the cyber operations grew up from the intelligence community. And, and look, countries are obviously going to do intelligence operations, not just in cyberspace, but in the real world. They've done that since the beginning of time. They'll do it to the end of time. And that's, you know, that's a reality. Uh, however, um, 
you know, I think I think two things. There are sometimes when these quote unquote cyber espionage are also destructive. I'd say the the half meme attack left a lot of computers was done very clumsily, left a lot of computers open by, for exploitation by criminal groups, including private sector computers. So this might mean you would have to start thinking about what are the limits even of traditional espionage. Uh, and then the other part of this is, I think we need to think more about transparency. So in the past, when we do operations for intelligence purposes, we don't want people to know about it. But if we're really trying to send a message that we take this seriously and we're using all the tools, including economic sanctions, but also kind of cyber operations to enforce this, not just us, but our allies, we want even the adversary to know, look, we're doing this and we're going to continue doing this. And it's because you did this. And if you change your activity on that, we'll stop doing this. So, you know, I think more transparency in terms of our capabilities, not with respect to independent operate, you know, individual operations, obviously, for OPSEC reasons, but in a larger uh, uh, way to communicate what we'll do, how we're going to do it, and to try to bring people in line, I think is important. Look, it's not going to be easy. Uh, you know, I think one use case we're seeing right now is whether or not Putin will take action against ransomware groups operating apparently independently in Russia. Uh, he certainly, I think, could take action. If he doesn't, then the question is, what do we do? Uh, and how do we either persuade him to take action by putting pressure on him with other countries or try to disrupt those groups on our own. And that's going to be a, a real interesting test case to watch over the next six months. Um, let me ask you, um, I, I was recently in, in uh, Canada, and one of the things that strikes you about Canada is the fluidity with which uh, our two nations patrol our borders, right? We have pursuit into each other's waters. Um, you know, can Canadians come, uh, you know, the Canadian Coast Guard comes to the aid of American vessels or breaks ice on our side uh, of the international boundary. We do, we do the same thing. Uh, and, um, you know, so that leads me to ask you about cyber boundaries, pursuit, and, and what that entire space looks like, right? I mean, I, I remember uh, early in the Obama administration, you know, anytime you talked about offensive cyber capabilities, it was, you know, you almost got into a Talmudic uh, argument uh, about, you know, well, uh, you know, offensive is to improve your defensive game. And that's absolutely true, right? You need offensive capabilities to make sure your defenses are good, but you also have offensive for offensive reasons as well, right? Which was a reluctance to try to, to discuss that. Uh, right. What are the boundaries in cyberspace, Chris? Because these are, you know, fuzzy, right? Um, yeah, I, I how, how do our allies and partners act in, 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 a, in a sort of fluid way that's mutually constructive, right? I mean, it, it's, it's funny. I don't have a good answer for that, which is why I'm asking you. Yeah, so there, there are two aspects to that. One, every country that's, that can, even those that can, are trying to develop cyber capabilities. So it's not going to win. We're not, you know, not going to ban cyber tools or cyber capabilities. But all the effort that in the UN and other forums to say certain targets should be off limits in peacetime, go to exactly that, to try to cabin how these tools are used. And and it goes back to that accountability piece. Now, the other thing I'd say that, that is interesting is it goes back to this balance. So, you know, uh, when we talk about, when the U.S. talks about forward uh, engagement and, and uh, or, you know, defending forward and, and persistent engagement, you know, part of that contemplates taking action in third party countries to go after adversarial networks. And you certainly can make an argument that that's important to do. But, but how do you balance doing that in a unilateral way with working with those countries, if they're allies and partners, uh, to make so they're sharing the burden, they're doing it too. You're building that collective approach. 
Now, to be sure, some countries are not going to be cooperative and we have to do what we have to do. You know, a colleague of mine used to say, if the flaming ball of cyber death is coming toward you, you have to take action. But a lot of times we have the time to kind of build those alliances and work with them. And I think that's something we have to continue to do. And that goes back to the transparency point. And, and other countries will too. The, the one you know, other limitation I'd say is, you know, some people, including I, have suggested in the past, well, maybe can you reach agreements that you can operate, you know, using your Canadian example, you can operate in another country's territory to take out threats to you. But of course, they'd have to be able to do that on your territory to take out threats to them. Um, Difficult, right? I mean, first of all, I'm not sure our private sector would welcome that. <laughs> that happened. Right. Uh, and, and second, there are interesting Fourth Amendment constitutional issues uh, in the cybercrime arena. When we looked at this many years ago, uh, under the same kind of theory, uh, there's challenges because is that considered an unreasonable search and seizure to grant another country the ability to, to, to do then a law enforcement operation in this country? Are there are there limitations to what we can even agree to with another country? But we've got to really start working on this and studying this. It's important for us to develop capabilities, absolutely. But using them in a smart way is going to be critical because you want to, you know, you want to draw the like-minded countries to work with you. You don't want to in any way alienate them. And I think there are ways we can do that without uh, diminishing our own capabilities. Uh, you know, one of the other uh, triggers for this, and I've got one more question, uh, was also. Uh, the agreement among Singapore, uh, Malaysia, and Indonesia, right? When piracy was getting very bad, each one of them had to stop at the end of their own national waters and there was clearance. And then when they got to free pursuit, it, it had a ten tendency of changing the dynamic in the Malacca Strait. So that was kind of another idea I had was the more of that flexibility you have, um, obviously, if it's, if it's ordered, uh, regularized, right, and and governed by agreements and oversight. Uh, it, it 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 you know um, one domain can inform uh, how you behave in another domain. Speaking of multiple domains, um, the Russians uh, recently blew up one of their Cold War era satellites, uh, releasing a very massive debris field in in space. Uh, and in space, uh, just like in cyberspace, right? You're you're looking at a three-dimensional domain. Uh, you're looking at fuzzy lines. You're looking at attributional challenges. How how do um, how how do you think space and cyberspace connect uh, in terms of being critical global commons where guys are uh, and gals may be up to no good, folks may be up to no good, right? How does how does one domain inform? how you behave and regard the other, especially since the United Nations now. I know that Russia and China are pushing their own agreement. Now the UN is looking at something broader, which is something the United States has wanted. But, yeah. but there are a lot of similarities here in, in many respects. Well, there are some agreements already in terms of the peaceful use of space and, and, you know, and things the US has certainly advocated for some time. And, and I do think that there, in some ways there's more learning with respect to space because we've been worried about this for a longer period of time. I would say they're different domains because space, I think it's fair to call that a global commons in a lot of different ways. Where cyberspace is a weird hybrid. So, you know, cyberspace is not in a place, right? It's uh, what well, it is actually in a place. I mean, the servers that make up cyberspace are in the actual sovereign territory of states around the world. So to say that, that, that cyber is a commons it has commons-like aspects, but it also is very, you know, right. grounded to physical sovereignty. So I think, you know, the, the, the term I coined in the past was it's more like a, you know, cyber is more like a condominium. It's like a, a global condominium. You know, there's ownership, but there's also trans, you know, things that transcend that. Um, 
And I, I think we can learn some lessons from that, especially because you know space is also a conduit for a lot of cyberspace, including satellite communications, uh, increasingly um, you know internet links using satellite systems, which I think will only get uh, you know more prevalent over time. Um, you know, I think there's also differences in terms of the concerns. I mean, I think the U.S. has been more active in pursuing like a code of conduct in cyberspace for some time where at the same time it's been much less interested in doing that in cyberspace, because in cyberspace, the rationale that Russia and China have had to pursue like a global binding treaty in cyberspace is to go after, you know, not just malicious code, but, um, uh, but what they view as destabilizing content. So, you know, there's a very big difference in terms of the views of, of what you should do in cyberspace. And I think we've settled on this idea of well, let's at least focus on what the norms, what the expectations are and enforce those before we get to a more tree sort of angle. But I do think we can learn some things as these both develop. Let, let me bring you back on, on the ransomware question and, and, and the Russians and indeed um, whether the administration is on the right track in trying to pursue this. Are, are we and is there any way to contain this? I, I don't want to bring up Dmitry Alperovitch again of the Silverado Policy Accelerator, but Dmitry has sort of been like, it, it's not abundantly clear whether we are doing anything to affect the uh, the ransomware guys because a hundred million dollars is is a lot of money in Russia and they might be in Sochi on the Black Sea just enjoying it right yeah. they can restart at any time they could and but it's like you know it's, there's two aspects to this one is getting the Russian state to crack down on them and uh, and, and the jury is out on whether that's happening certainly that's the whole point of Biden's meeting with Putin with the uh, discussions between the U.S. and Russia. We'll see. I mean, the jury's out. We'll see if they actually take action. I think, you know, clearly, if if someone could take action, Putin can. And the history has not been good. You know, I used to chair the when there was a G8, the G8 high tech crime group. We've never had great cooperation with Russia on cyber crime issues, but I think there's an opportunity at least here. Um, if there's not, that's going to be an interesting thing. And so then that that raises a question. Like I said before, is what kind of pressure can you bring to bear? Uh, that will really motivate Putin to do that. And I think that we have to think more creatively than we have in the past when we've just simply done kind of happenstance sanctions on Russia. We have to think about what tools we can use. Uh, the second is, um, you know, how we can disrupt these groups. And so I think that requires a whole soup to nuts uh, way of doing this. And I think we've mentioned on a prior podcast, the ransomware task force report that I helped co-chair. And that that includes like, you know, enforcing things like know your customer rules and, and um, any money laundering rules on cryptocurrency. It, it means uh, working with victims so they can survive a ransomware attack and don't necessarily have to pay it. Uh, so you cut off some of the money stream. And it means really, if, uh, you know, really, I think, uh, going after these groups as much as you can and hooking them up wherever you can find them during lower, lower operations and everything else. I don't pretend it's going to be easy. The reason it's been such a big deal is it's incredibly lucrative and the risks are incredibly low. So we need to raise the risks to the actors and lower the lucrativity, if that's a word, I guess it's not, <laughs> lower the uh, um, uh, the amount they're going to make from this. And that's going to take, again, a sustained effort. It can't be an overnight thing. What I'm heartened about is that, you know, as I talk to different countries around the world, there's a lot of activity. It's not just the US, it's Australia, it's the EU, it's the UK, uh, it's the Dutch. I mean, people are, you know, really focused on this issue and that I think will help. Um, do you, let me uh, one one follow up to that. Um, Congress is considering very uh, strong sanctions, right? And uh, Russia human rights uh, activists have said uh, that the kind of sp- sanctions 
uh, you know, extending basically Magnitsky uh, to uh, senior political uh, and economic leaders across Russia in a much tougher way is is the only way to sort of undermine uh, the regime, uh, the the Putin regime, and put pressure on it. Do you think that those measures, right? I mean, that some uh, fear cross diplomatic Rubicons, especially by sanctioning sort of senior political figures in Russia. I think we have to. I think we have to consider those things. Look, I think the sanctions we've imposed so far on Russia have been somewhat episodic and not sustained. You know, uh, for election interference, we lifted shortly after and imposed the sanctions on Deripaska, who was a close associate of Putin and involved in the Internet Research Agency. So we, you know, we can't afford to send mixed messages. It's had to be clear, and we haven't really gone after Putin's money flows or his cronies' money flows or their investments in other countries. Uh, which we could. Now, could that be very escalatory? Maybe. And so we have to decide that. But at the same time, you know, if we take the position that these are off the table and we're self-deterring, then we are in- essentially encouraging this behavior to continue. So we've got to think a little bit out of the box and, and, and you know, also figure out how we can de-escalate if there's escalation, but, you know, take some actions we haven't before if there's no action. Chris, thanks so very much. It's always a pleasure having you on the show. Uh, Always enjoy it. Uh, And uh, if we don't talk before the holidays, hope you have great holidays. You too. Thanks so much again, Chris. Uh, Really appreciate your time and understand that you got to punch out. No worries. Thank you so very much. And this will be up tomorrow. Great. My pleasure. Thanks again. Cheers. Bye-bye. From cyberspace to outer space. Northrop Grumman cyber technology spans all domains and all aspects of national security. We are delivering the next generation of cyber capabilities that protect our nation and its allies. Visit northropgrumman.com forward slash cyber to learn more.